0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a
1: series of programs on the Book of Romans, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcasts. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was addressing the beginning of Chapter 1 in the Book of Romans. And I would like to cover a subject that's here that many people enjoy discussing. Now this is not going to be a complete study on this subject. It's only going to be a general description of what I believe concerning it. And I do believe that it's very important for me to take some time to address this subject, at least in a small way, because this is an important subject to many people in Christianity. And when they see certain words, it brings up this subject, it brings up these beliefs and this theology, and sometimes it can be biased against some of the things that I want to convey, some of the things that I do believe. Sometimes these biases will interfere, they will get in the way, and so because of that I need to address this. The subject that I'm referring to is the subject of predestination and free will. The subject of Calvinism, Arminianism, being chosen, being called, that kind of subject. That's something that is on the minds of many people, and when they see certain key words in the scriptures, then this subject comes up, and unfortunately, sometimes it can cloud the issues. It can cause some confusion in people's minds when it comes to the relationship that I believe our God has truly called us to. And so for that reason, I'm going to have to deal with it. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. And this is the first example of what I'm referring to, that people will look at this word called and they will say, Paul was exclusively called as an apostle, or he was uniquely called as an apostle. Now, of course, this can cause some difficulty, especially because of a previous program that I recorded concerning verse 5, when it says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And so that should give you some indication that perhaps this notion or this belief that Paul was exclusively called as an apostle, it can cause a little bit of an issue, because if we have been called, if we have received grace and apostleship as well, If we are also considered to be apostles, and I did a program on this subject already explaining that the real meaning of this word has to do with being sent out. Unfortunately, not everybody shares that opinion. Other people look at this word and they say, you see, this is a unique individual who God has called and he has sent this unique individual to be an apostle and no one else can possibly be someone who he calls and sends out, because Paul was unique in this regard. And I understand that to a certain extent. I don't have a problem saying that he called Paul in a very unique way, and he gave him a message to take out into the world. I don't have a problem with that. My concern is that when we use that word inappropriately, we can give the impression that no one else, no one else can communicate the same message that Paul communicated. That's the restriction that eventually gets imposed on individuals, and I am definitely opposed to that. And unfortunately, this word is one of the ways that people are causing this kind of confusion to suggest that Paul was able to do this, but you can't. And I just don't believe that. Using this word called is another way of enforcing this idea by saying that God called Paul... But he did not call you. He called the Apostle Paul, but he did not call you. And so you've got no business, no business at all giving people the impression that you might know the living God. You have to always defer people to the Apostle Paul or another apostle, not to the person who you believe in with reference to the living God. That's what happens is that people use this as a way of establishing authority for themselves because there are many people today who call themselves modern apostles and they do this in order to assert exclusive authority. And this word called is used in that sense. Another place this word is used is in verse six, where it says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And when people read this, they say, yes, you are also called, but you are not called in the same way that the Apostle Paul was called. You know, this can really cause a lot of confusion because, of course, he did not call you to go from Damascus out into the rest of the world like he called the Apostle Paul. He did not call you to walk amongst all the people and all the villages in the land of Israel like he did with the Lord Jesus. He sends you to do other things, different things. And so I agree with that. I don't have a problem agreeing with that issue. Unfortunately, again, people are saying that you have been called, but not in the way that Paul was called. Well, in some ways, that's true, but in other ways, that's not. And we have to have some discernment concerning this. It's very important to be aware of this. But what people do, especially in verse 6, is they say, you also are the called in the sense that you are also saved. People use this reference and say, you see, the apostle Paul has been saved because God called him and God called you also. But inherently, what they're really saying is that he called you, but he didn't call everybody. There are some people that he did not call. Continuing into verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 7. So some people are called and others are called as saints within those who are called, if not all are saints. These are the kinds of discussions that people end up getting into, but I'm not going to do that in this program. Instead, I'm going to emphasize this word called and deal with this subject of whether or not. Our God has decided that some people are going to be saved and other people are going to be lost. Because what people are saying is that he only calls some people, but he doesn't call other people. And because he doesn't call other people, those other people cannot possibly be saved. Now, this belief has a long history to it, and there have been debates and discussions about this subject ever since the beginning of the church. In fact, before the beginning of the church. And so I am very confident that I will not resolve this subject, this issue, in this one program. I understand that. I'm not going to even try to do that. And so please consider that before you contact me and decide to engage in a debate or a discussion with me, because I'm telling you directly right now that I know full well that this subject is a big one, and I'm not going to be able to deal with it right now in this one short period of time. So please take that into consideration and show some maturity concerning this issue. And understand that I do have a belief concerning this subject. And I have given this a lot of thought and a lot of prayer. And while I might be very new to you, please understand that this subject is definitely not new to me. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to give you my direct belief concerning this. I'm going to be very direct about this. Now, when it comes to this issue of being called or not, let me tell you what people are really concerned about. What people are afraid of, which is the correct term, not really concerned, but more afraid, what people are afraid of is they are afraid that some people might be called by God and yet those people decide, they choose not to answer that call. Now the fear concerning this is that God has been overcome or he has been overpowered by the choice of one of his creation. And for many people, this is considered to be totally unacceptable, to suggest that God would want someone to be saved, that God would want someone to be in his heaven, and yet somebody, this person, would decide that they don't want to be there. And because they decide that, God has been overcome by the choice of this individual. And for many people, this is unacceptable. And on the other side of this coin, people are very concerned, they are very afraid of the idea that perhaps God may not want someone in his kingdom, but because this person has the ability to choose to respond to the gospel and believe in the living God, then he will be obligated to allow them into heaven because they met the criteria that was defined by the gospel. This is another fear that people have that they will overcome God's desire in the event that God does not want someone in heaven. But this is not as popular as people being afraid that some people will not make it into heaven when God wants them to be there. Now, that's what people are really concerned about. And so while people are discussing this subject, when you are discussing the subject with others, you need to be aware that what you might be arguing is not necessarily what is important to them. That you might be talking about whether or not people have free will, but the reality is that this debate is never going to end because the real problem is, is that they are frightened, they are afraid of the implications of conceding to your argument, that there are other fears, there are other issues. And for the most part, you're going to have to deal with those if you're ever going to come to a conclusion to these kinds of discussions. Perhaps you have had these kinds of discussions with people and you've found that they can go on for hours, for days, for years. And you may feel as if you're just going around in circles and not getting anywhere. That's normally because you're not really dealing with the real issues that a person is really concerned about. And they may not be willing to let you know what they are really concerned about, either because they don't want to admit it themselves, or they themselves may not be fully aware of what they are really concerned about. And so this is an important subject to understand. Now, I believe, concerning this issue of calling, is that I believe that our God has called out to everyone. He has called out to the entire world. But in calling out to the entire world, he has called out something, And what he has called out is that he is willing to offer mercy for anyone who is truly willing to receive his mercy for their sins, that he is willing to offer them his mercy, his forgiveness to anyone who is willing to receive that. But if a person is unwilling to receive that, he may full well forgive them But that forgiveness is in the context of his willingness to forgive them for his own benefit, not really for theirs. He forgave us because of what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago. He already provided for forgiveness. But it doesn't mean anything to people unless they are willing to acknowledge that they have a need for it. So from the people's point of view... They do not really understand that they have already been forgiven, and so we speak to them in the context of He is offering them something, when in reality He has already given them His forgiveness. But He does that so that He can offer them the restoration of the Holy Spirit. And as I have explained many times, the restoration of the Holy Spirit is what truly saves an individual. And the forgiveness of sins is what makes that salvation possible, because with the complete forgiveness of sins, there is no sin that could cause the Holy Spirit to depart from anyone ever again. And so they are made alive by the indwelling presence of his spirit. They are resurrected from the dead by his indwelling life, and that that truly is salvation. So he calls out to the entire world saying, hey, look, this is what I have to offer, this is what I have to offer, and this is the criteria that I have established by which a person can respond, be saved, and enter in to the kingdom of heaven. So what he has established, what he has predestined, is the criteria by which an individual can be saved. That criteria is acknowledgement that you have sin that needs to be forgiven, accepting the forgiveness that he has offered acknowledging that you are spiritually dead and accepting the free gift of life. With that criteria being understood, a person can be saved, but a person has to choose to believe in the true and living God. They have to choose to believe that what he is offering is real, because it is, and they have to choose to accept it under his conditions. When that happens, then they can be saved, and so he is in complete control concerning salvation he is in complete control in the sense that he has established the criteria and no one is going to be able to enter into his kingdom outside of that criteria so i personally do not see that he has given up any of his sovereignty any of his power any of his control by allowing people the freedom to choose whether they want to respond to what he is offering or not But there are many people who are frightened, who are totally terrified of the idea that people might have the ability to make choices in their own life concerning what they're going to believe and what they are going to do. And there are many reasons for that, many reasons why they are terrified. I understand that. And I can't deal with that in the short amount of time I have in this program. I just want to acknowledge it, that that is the reality. But let me tell you something concerning this. And that is that your God is trustworthy. That if he has given people the ability to choose what they are going to do, what they are not going to do, what they are going to believe, and what they are not going to believe. Yes, it is true that people are going to choose evil. That is true. But you have got to trust him concerning this. You have got to trust him because he is trustworthy. And if you don't trust him, then you're going to be totally confused. That's why it's so important. You have to trust him and believe that if he's going to allow people to do that, that yes, there is great cost involved, great suffering that will result. But the benefit, the value, the results are worth it. That's the issue, is that you must trust him, that he knows what he's doing, and that if he's going to allow people to have free will within the boundaries of his sovereignty, that it's okay, and things will still work out as he desires. What does he desire? He desires a people who will turn to him for who he is, not because they have to. People are very concerned about this subject. Let me give you another example. When it came to the fall of humanity... Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree, didn't they? In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we have the description of the creation, the law, and the fall. And I suppose you believe that when Eve ate from that tree and then Adam ate from that tree, I suppose you believe that it was God who made them do it, don't you? That's what you really believe, isn't it? You don't really believe that they had the choice. There are many people who don't really want to believe this. That's what I mean by that. I'm not saying that you, as in everyone who is listening to this, there are some people who are listening to this right now who believe that Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree because God wanted them to eat from the wrong tree, that there is no maverick molecule in the universe, there is no free will. There is no choice. There is no ability. There is only what God decides, and there is nothing else. There are many people who believe that, and there are reasons why they believe that. I understand that, and some of them make perfect sense from a logical point of view. I can't deal with that right now. I'm only saying that there are many people who really believe that Adam and Eve did not have that choice, and so this is what it sounds like. It sounds like when Eve said that the devil made me do it, remember that excuse? Eve said, the devil made me do it, the devil deceived me, God should have responded. He should have responded, and this should be recorded, shouldn't it? He should have responded to Eve and said, no, Eve, you're wrong. The devil didn't make you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't do that. I did. I'm the one who did that. That's what we should see there in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? There are a lot of people who believe that. And I want you to know that I just don't share in that. I just don't believe that. I really don't. I believe she ate from that tree and Adam ate from that tree because they wanted to. And the reason why they wanted to was because they were deceived by the serpent. And the way that he deceived them was by saying, don't worry, God cannot be trusted. God cannot be believed in. Believe in me instead. Trust me instead. And folks, there are a lot of people who are confused about this issue of called and chosen, all that kind of stuff, because they are afraid to trust God. It's the same thing in reverse. They don't want to trust God because they don't believe that he's trustworthy concerning giving mankind the ability to make choices about what they are going to do or not do with their own lives. It's very important. Now, where does this subject really come from? I mean, what's the real history of this? This is a very important question to answer because it says everything about the entire debate. Now, in Judaism, this subject is totally non-existent. Now, I'm not saying that that validates the insanity of the subject, that because it's not in Judaism, then that means that it's not real. That is definitely not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that to let you know that in Judaism it is non-existent because there are many people who don't realize that this subject is non-existent in Judaism. It has never been addressed, this issue of predestination, free will. It is completely non-existent. And the reason why is because the evidence in the scriptures is overwhelmingly showing That God is in total control of everything that he wants to be in total control of, and he has allowed mankind the freedom to make choices in their own lives as well. That God has predestined some things, but not all things. That he knows some things, but he has chosen not to know other things. That is the issue in historical Judaism, with the exception of one occasion. There was one occasion that this subject came up. In the history of Judaism. This subject did come up, but a lot of people miss this. It came up in the Maccabean Wars. That's where this debate actually came up. And I'll tell you how. It came up because the Greeks wanted to impose Greek philosophy and Greek religion on the Israelites. That's where it came up in the history of Israel, and it's come up in no other place as far as I can tell. In the history of Israel and the history of Judaism, the Maccabean Wars were fought over this issue. When many people consider the Maccabean Wars, they're normally concerned about what the Greeks did not want the Jews to do, what the Greeks did not want the Jews to believe. But there's been virtually no discussion about what they wanted the Jews to believe instead. That's the issue. Again, When it comes to the Maccabean Wars, the subject of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, people are normally concerned about what the Greeks did not want the Jews to do or believe. Instead, you need to understand and recognize what they wanted the Jews to do and believe instead, because this is where the issue was found. You see, when the war got started, the Maccabean War got started, it was over the issues that the Greeks were not willing to allow them to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. They could not observe the Sabbath day, and they were not allowed to observe the dietary laws. That was what they did not want the Jews to do. But what they wanted the Jews to do instead was to believe in Greek philosophy, Greek religion, And who were the fathers of Greek philosophy, of Greek religion? Who were the guys who started these beliefs that the Greeks wanted to impose on the Jews that started the Maccabean War? Who were these guys? These guys were Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. That's who came up with the religion of Greek philosophy and of the gods of the Greeks who were the personification of the philosophies that were established by Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. A war was fought over this, and the beliefs of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the Greek philosophy, is founded on the fundamental principles of God having total sovereignty. It was founded on the idea that mankind does not have free will. Now, there was some competition in there, whereas some Greek philosophers believed that God was sort of outside in outer space looking at us through a telescope, watching us duke it out amongst ourselves. There were some competing views. I understand that. I know about that. The issue is, though, is that the predominant beliefs had to do with the fact That God knew everything, that he was everywhere, that he had no emotions, that he could not be affected by people who he created. These were the beliefs of pagan Greek philosophy, and the Jews fought a war over these beliefs. But what happened with the Christians? The Christians embraced the beliefs that the Jews fought a war over. Now, I'm not saying that that means that the Jews were right, because obviously they rejected the Messiah when he arrived, and so I'm not saying that that means that the Jews were automatically right concerning this. I'm only saying that people do not understand that a war was fought over this issue of chosen, of called, of predestined. A war was fought over this. The survival of the Israelite people depended on this, and the Christians have embraced it. The Christians have embraced this. How can I say that? It's easy. Check any standard encyclopedia on Augustine, St. Augustine. And I quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica on this one, and that is that he is the dominant personality of the Western Church of his time, generally recognized as the greatest thinker of Christian antiquity. Why? Because he fused the religion of the New Testament with the Platonic tradition of Greek philosophy. That's why I say the Christians have embraced pagan Greek philosophy where the Jews were willing to fight a war over it. And so when it comes to the subject of being called and chosen, all that kind of stuff, I personally believe that the confusion exists because people have embraced pagan Greek philosophy. Instead of considering that God has established the criteria and the boundaries, and we get to function within that criteria and within those boundaries. Now again, the real issue here is that people are afraid that people will be able to make choices outside of God's desire. They are afraid and unwilling to trust God when it is considered that he has given us the ability to choose to do good or evil because the outcomes will cause great suffering in the world because people will choose to do that which is evil in addition to choosing to do that which is good. So the subject is big but I do not see this subject in Romans chapter 1 when many others do and I have to mention that when presenting this study on Romans.
0: You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.